there's a teaching of Christ in the Bible where he says, why are you picking at the moat in somebody else's eye when there's a beam in your own? And Shakespeare just creates all these beams so that we can see, oh, these are how these beams are placed and they help us to see the moats in our own eyes. That may well be beams. <laughs> Welcome to And If Love Remains, the podcast that is a podcast. <laughs> That's probably not going to be my intro, but I'll figure out the intro later. <laughs> um, today we have the distinct honor of having the man machine, the Levitt, legend of Levitt, Stephen, with us. Steven, how you doing? If that ain't the best introduction for an for the most unaccomplished guest ever, I don't know what is. So I'm glad to be here. Oh, just know it's you're good a legend. Here. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad it's good for you to be here because it's good to have you here. Yeah. So, how's your day today? How was my day today? Yeah. Woo. Um, it was really good. I woke up pretty early this morning. I. I only hit snooze once, so like that's pretty early. That's and, pretty early. That's um, got a ride to work. Got there early. Um, we had the manager working today, who gets there early too. So we got a bunch of stuff done before we were even technically supposed to be there. That was really cool. My day went really smooth at work. I worked about an almost a nine-hour shift, and. Um, came home, rested up. I played basketball with uh, Lincoln, the little brother, a little bit, and yeah, I've had a really good day. That sounds like a really, really good day. It was really, it really was. <laughs> All the release. So, I want to talk to you today about a f- few things. So, we've got a um, couple of kids in the family that are in the middle of Shakespeare rehearsals. They're uh, performing a Shakespeare called Twelfth Night. Mm-hmm. Now, you have some experience this, with Shakespeare plays. Is that true? No. Just kidding. I've performed in five plays, yeah. I've performed with different homeschool groups, and Twelfth Night was actually the first one that I did. So um, it's been really cool to watch them kind of get into it a little bit. I've, I don't feel like... I don't feel as much a part of it as I did when I was in it, obviously, so I don't know really... I don't see the passion and the uh, the learning that's going on, but it's really cool to see them come home and uh, see Rachel so excited about getting the tickets sold, see Matthew memorizing his lines so un- undiligently and diligently, but he's working on that, and it's just really cool to see it all come together. Cool. So what is, t- uh, tell us a little bit about Twelfth Night from your perspective. From or from you know from my perspective as a story or from the play that i was in let's start with the story so it's about uh it's about a shipwreck and twins who get separated by the shipwreck and one's a woman one's a man the woman has to dress like a man so that she can uh that she can so that she can make her way in the town off the coast of where they wrecked until she can like figure out what's going on and so it's just the story of all the complications and how it all comes together. And, um, yeah, it's, and then in the end, every, everybody gets married and it's all happily ever after. And you figure out, oh, this boy is actually a lovely young woman. And then suddenly all of the matches match and there's a bunch of couples and they're like, oh, let's get married. And hmm. that's little, such an interesting Shakespeare comedy. A little um, sidetrack thing before we continue. Um, let me know if he comes home, Lincoln got a ride, and didn't see Matthew at church. So just, you know. Um, okay, noted. We'll let you know. Even. Thank you. All right, so that's actually really interesting. In, if you think about 
today's society, what's up is up, is down, what's down is up, what's woman is male, what's male is woman. And anyway, maybe we'll talk about that. But so, what are some of like the main? Why do you think this is? Um, why is it such a fun play for to to see? And I mean, it sounds just kind of like a, a switcheroo, kind of like you know. Almost. It's it's a very switcheroo. It's it's fun just because of the drama in it, and um, different characters get led on in different ways and. Uh, I don't want to spoil it because you're going to see the well, play. It's only, but, you know, 500 you know, years old, so I don't think you're spoiling yeah, but, uh, it. And I did see it before. The one, so, the one that they're in has a 20s twist, so you know it's completely different, you know? Well, that is true. <laughs> I, did, I did write all that music. So I kind of know what's happened. But our audience might be interested in, like, again, like, what, what makes it so fun? Why... Why, why was that such a good... Because that was really your first experience in acting. Why was that so great for you? Hmm. As far as my experience in acting, it really set the tone for the energy that I would carry through the rest of um, my amateur performances. What part, which part did you play? I played Sir Toby Belch. So I was the drunkard... Uh, I was the drunk uncle of one of the lead women, Olivia, of one of the lead characters. That sounds like that would be a fun part to play. It was. It was. I was the best 12-year-old drunk you have ever seen. It was a blast, and I loved it. So. Hopefully the only 12-year-old drunk I've ever seen. Huh? Mm. Well, we do live in Arizona. Yes. yes. 12-year-old drunks. Are walking down the street on the <laughs> as we speak. I guess as they go to school. <laughs> anyway, so uh, um, and do you remember any like lines or anything from that play? Do I remember any lines from Sir Toby Belch? Yes. You know what's funny? I can see. So I had two scripts. I had an unabridged version that I got originally, and they abridged it and gave it to me again. Right. So I can see the color in my mind of both scripts. One was like a purple and one was a red. But for the life of me, I cannot make the words any more than a blur on that page in my mind. Interesting. <laughs> and. No, so basically no. No, like I have words, you know, like at one point there's a character named Sir Andrew Aguecheek and Sir Toby calls him Ague Face. Or something like that. It just like botches his name. And like I have little things like that in my head. And I know um, specific choreography that I would use for myself. Because the way I memorize lines. Um, I memorize by. Uh, what's it called? I'm trying to think of the word. I memorize by choreography. And I memorize by intonation. So I'll remember the rhythm of how I say it and the different pronunciations. And I'll choreograph if I have something I want to do in a scene. I'm, I'll like, for example, in rehearsal, I'll have the line memorized, but it won't really be in my head until I perform the scene. And then I'm like, oh, this would be so super funny if I could do it this way. And once I've hooked action to word and I've kind of pulled everything together, it just comes really naturally to me. And memorization does anyway, but especially when I connect it to, oh, I can make the audience laugh like this, or I could, I could really make, get, I like attention, especially when I was younger and I thought all hey, the attention you don't like was it anymore. I love attention now. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. This is an honor to be here, but, um, when it's very easy to be the center of the show. And that's the kind of thing that I'd be like, oh, I can get I can get people's attention this way. I can make sure people are engaged in this way. And that was something that was really fun for me. So that's cool. That's cool. Um, so you were twelve. What was the next one you did? When I was thirteen, I played uh, Nick Bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream, and that's the character with the donkey head on the front of all Shakespeare poetry books ever. Yes. 
So I played him. So then I was I, really the center of attention. An iconic character. Very iconic. Um, so Midsummer's Night Dream is a very like crazy play. Can you can you summarize? Okay, so it takes place in Athens in the woods of Athens. There's two fairy tribes, one led by a king, one led by a queen, who are like fighting because the king and queen broke up. And then there's characters in Athens, and it's one of those whole marriage situations of Shakespeare's time where the father wants the girl to marry the one guy, but the one but the girl's in love with another guy, so they all run away. And then there's the random fourth girl who is just a fourth person who happens to be a girl. You know, it just so happens that the couples match up and they all run into the woods and um, they're pranked a lot and made to fall in love with each other in different ways before it all gets sorted out at the end. And then Nick Bottom is kind of just lost in the commotion. It's really kind of sad. (laughs) What happened? Is he is he like a clueless character? He just doesn't understand what's happening around him, or well, he thinks he does, but he he doesn't to the point that he thinks he does. So he just gets caught up in this magical fairyland that he doesn't understand, but he just knows he likes it. And then at the end, he comes back and they perform for all the duke and all the couples who were in the forest because they're all nobility because everybody's nobility in a play. (laughs) And (laughs) so, and then they just perform this random thing that he didn't rehearse at all, but he's in charge and okay. He's not in charge, but he thinks he's in charge. So he acts like it. And he's just, He's that one friend that thinks he knows everything, like me. And then, but behind his back, everybody's just like, yep, and we're just going to do stuff because he doesn't know what he's doing. So, like, just do your own thing. Keep your head down. Move along. <laughs> Stay humble. <laughs> so he, he's Make him feel good about himself. Yeah, so he basically just doesn't, he's, he's in his own little world. He is, and he thinks his world is everybody else's, and it's it was a really fun character to play. That's yeah, fun. it was really fun, and you get to make donkey noises and the whole bit. So, well, that's all. Yeah, you don't get to do that every day. I mean, unless you're Stephen the Man, the Myth, the Legend of Michael Levitt. That's true. That's true. The ten named wonder, <laughs> as I like to call myself. Ain't wonder. Uh, all right, so you so you started with Twelfth Night, and then you did Midsummer's. Oh, tell me. So, what was like the difference in um, the directing? Like, how is how were they different? Do you remember? I remember they were different. I remember some things, but I'm not sure about. That's pretty funny. <laughs> that was pretty good. Don't cut that. That was funny. <laughs> Oh, we're, oh we're, we're live and raw here. We're, we're really good. Um, who was... I'm trying to remember who my... Dir- oh, I remember. Okay. Um, those two plays weren't too different as far as directing. Um, the best... I got... I probably got better personal coaching in Midsummer Night's Dream because one of our directors had played my part before. Preston uh, had played my part. And right. so that was really helpful. But I took to it naturally, and that was fun. The biggest change I had in directing was when I was 14. It was my fourth play. Really? And I did uh, The Merchant of Venice. And they cast me as like as Bassanio, who is like the lover, prince, wins the girl type character. And I've never, I like, you'd think I would like, like that, like, because it's the main character, but it was really, it was a really difficult part because in the past I just done bottom and Sir Toby Belch and things like that, you know? So, so, so instead of being the comic relief, yeah, I had to be the, 
pillar of the show, I guess. I don't know if that's a phrase that's used, but the pillar and um, and the director was very different and much stricter. And it wasn't, and it was, it was a good experience. It was, it's one of those things that you look back on and you're like, yeah, I'm glad I did that. But in the moment you're like, eh, I'd really rather not. And, but I'm really glad I did. The energy was great. The energy is always great when you're performing. So, and I think that makes it worth it. And what was the third play that you did? The third play that I did was, I might have miscounted. That might be the third play I did. Yeah, Merchant was the third play. So I've done Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night was number one. And then I did Midsummers, And then Merchant. And then Taming of the Shrew. And then Much Ado About Nothing. Okay. And those are my five plays. So, 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 so tell me about Merchant. Merchant was... Um, I thought it would be my last play when I was doing it. And so it was really interesting to get into. And it was almost surreal like it was like I, it was like entering first of all there are no new phase there's no new phase of life when you're 14 like when you're 12 it's kind of different from before that and when you're 16 it's kind of different when you're 18 it's kind of different 14 there's really not a phase but in my head it was like a new stage of life like this was going to be my last play and then I'd be moving right. on to other things and um and so taking that approach, it was really the first year, I think, and I say, and I would say it was the first year that I really started taking people under my wing and started teaching them things and um, kind of working as, not an assistant, but like as a sub-director. Hmm. Like, here's, hey, here's how you can project better. Here's how you can memorize your lines. I can't hear you when I'm, I can't hear you when I'm backstage, which means the audience probably can't hear you if they're in the back of the uh, back of the theater, or the auditorium, or the what's it called when it's open air, but it's a audience seating. Um, um, slipping me right now. A venue. Venue. Back we'll of the venue. venue. <laughs> we'll call it a venue. At the back of the venue. So little things like that, little technical things, and I would have ideas. And so I would, I would tell, cause there's 12 year olds now too, but I'm 14. So I had like so all this experience, man. you know, and I go up to them and be like, Hey, do this. This would be hilarious. And they'd believe me. They'd like walk up there. <laughs> I'm sitting back there. And it was I'm hilarious like, for you. It was hilarious for me. And the directors were like, mm, we're not sure. But, and I was just like, sit there with just the smile. And <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was probably the most fun for me as far as just messing with people and, and learning how to be a leader and setting an example. Hmm. So that's cool. That's cool. Mm. What about, um, and what about the play itself? Like Merchant of Venice again, that, I mean, kind of an iconic Shakespeare. Merch, I, th well, Merchant of Venice is one of those plays that that's like watching it's like watching it's like watching a basketball game that has four or five of the most amazing highlights you've ever seen and the rest of the game is Princeton offense. Okay. Like it's one of those plays that it's entertaining because it has to be because it's a play because people have come to watch it. So you're not going to try to bore them out of their minds, but it's not. So it's entertaining because it's a performance, but it's not entertaining as a story very much. Why? What, what do you mean by that? Um, it's. It. To really understand the plot and the drama you have to know so much history and tradition and like, it's a really deep play. It's a really intellectual play. Um, Merchant and Othello both are really f fun plays to dissect and get into 
for example, there's the, oh my gosh, which is the Jewish lender, Shylock. Right. It's a really fun to dig into that character and figure out what makes him tick. But if you're just watching it, if you just sat down and watched this play, even if it weren't in Shakespearean language, it would be difficult to get him as more than just a jerk father who hates everybody Hmm. and wants his money. And until you know kind of what Shakespeare was basing that character off of and the types of people that that was like and the traditions and how not only that, but how those characters were viewed by people of Shakespeare's time and of his culture, you really start to understand it's more of a dissertation on the culture of the Elizabethan era than it really is a performance to be um you're talking about the play the play itself yeah the play itself interesting um and there's moments of drama and there's the classic lead silver gold caskets and the quality of mercy is not strained it droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven and different lines and scenes that are iconic which is why i say it's like an nba game with like five great highlights and the rest of it is just yeah, this is how an offense goes. This is how defense works. It's cool. So why do you think uh, Merchant of Venice has become a favorite among the literary people? You know, it's one of the plays that I remember um, reading in high school when the few Shakespeare plays. I don't don't remember much about it, but I do know that um, flicking is coming through really clear. (laughs) Um, Anyway, but um, why? So why do you think that is? That that it's one of the plays that that it's that that at least the culture, our culture, feels it's important for for people to know and understand. I think it's it's a lot of different things. I think if you are a scholar of that kind of literary work, it's really interesting because you can really dissect um, different nuances of the culture and different techniques that Shakespeare uses. To can you give an show. example of that? Well, it's a all of Shakespeare plays. Shakespeare's plays are different stereotypes of people. And Merchant does a very good job of showing um, how they treated how they treated parents who could no longer care for themselves, how they treated um, the Jewish these Jewish moneylenders, how they treated each other, how they treat like it very much comes together. How even nobles of different classes would treat each other just a little bit differently. And so, for example, like uh, the main character, Portia, her father leaves um, a test for all these traveling suitors. And you really kind of see it's it's not blatantly racist, but there's some racism and there's some classism and it's just... Like what's important the, to that culture? Yeah, it's so much of what's important to that culture. and But as far as educationally, I think it's popular just because it's an easy play to give quizzes on. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is the easiest play because you can just say, all right, well, um, where were each of the suitors from? What were the caskets made out of? Who were the main characters? What was the best scene? What was the, uh, there's the pound of flesh thing you could quiz people on. It's just a really easy play to give quizzes on because there's those iconic things. But it's really a play about culture. And so if, and so those are the two sides of it. So do you think Shakespeare, what do you think his commentary on the culture was? Or was he just reflecting it? Um, I think the commentary... He reflects it in such a way that you don't notice the commentary. 
So I like something that I like about Shakespeare is that he uses the characters that in his time wouldn't be paid too much attention to, um, to prove a point. So the characters that you least expect to have wisdom are the wise. So the fools a lot of times are telling what Shakespeare's thinking, I think at least. This is kind of a personal opinion, but I feel like it carries. Um, That first, if a fool, it's either the fool or the youngest person or the lowest ranking, or if it's a man and a woman, it'll be the woman who says it. And that really reflected well, especially back in his day, where it was just, he, he wrote... He wrote plays to the point where women would pretend to be men so that they could have more freedom. And so, or more, not even more, I guess more freedom, but more respect. And that could be taken seriously. Yeah. And so that's really reflected in his plays. Excuse me. So, Hmm. and that's something that I like about that. That's cool. And so that was your third play. That was my third play, yeah. And then you did my favorite play, just because it's hilarious, The uh, Taming of the Shrew. Which is much more entertaining than Merchant. Very much more entertaining. Um, yeah, no thoughts. Moving on. Um, it was a great play. <laughs> what, was your, what, what did you play? I played Baptista. I was the father of Catherine, Caterina and Bianca. And did you enjoy that role? I, I have mixed feelings about that role. I feel like, yeah, I have mixed feelings about that role. But I did enjoy it while I played it. So, and that was a that, mm, it's a good play, and we can talk about the play a little bit. But that was really an experience that was more about the cast and the people around me than about the play. Like your friends and hanging, being yeah. with them. Well, not even just like hanging out with friends because all my plays I did that. No, but I but mean like, like the experience of being with them. Yeah, and learning from them. And yeah, the people made the play in that situation. And in some performance, you, you can say that the performance made the people, like it brought us together. But in that one, it was really the people that made the performance so much more than what it, what it would have been if it had just been a play. Hmm. That's cool. So yeah, let's well, let's talk about the play. What do you think it's what what why did Shakespeare write that play other than it's a good romp? Because after reading all the histories, you need a good romp. I <laughs> I don't see a better reason, but well, what do you okay, so what what do you like about the play? Um What do I like about Taming of the Shrew? But I mean, it's kind of a political I mean, all of his plays today are certainly, to a certain degree, politically incorrect. And politically, inv- yeah, very much so. Taming of the Shrew, maybe, I don't know about maybe the most so. I mean. <laughs> no, the most is probably still Othello. Yeah, but but um, what was so, um, but he, and again, it kind of goes back to what you talked about, you know, using I think stereotypes. A, well, okay. So it's. Politically incorrect, incorrect, and we can. I feel like that's talked about a lot with that play. Is just how. Yeah. So what? What else? What else should we know about that? So play? I think it's a good lesson for. I think it, the lesson that Katarina learns, I think, is misconstrued, because it's, it's played as. Oh well, this humble wife learning to be humble and obedient, and you mean the shrewish wife? Yeah, the shrewish wife learning to be subservient, right? And that's how it's played a lot, and that's why I think it comes off as politically incorrect. But if you take it away from um, man and woman, and really just take away all that garb and put on, okay, well, what can I learn from Katerina? You really learn that. I want so I want you to imagine this that if you're a part if you're a nobleman and a part of a household and you have all of these servants and all of these people coming through and um, you have your chefs you have your accountants you have your stewards 
you have guards, you have all these people that you're handling and you're all going towards one goal and that's making a living for yourself and um, making the most of what you have, right? So you have basically, your household is basically a business. Regardless of what other ventures you have, what other businesses, even just your household was a business. And when you're part of something, and so I think it's more something that we can learn from it is how to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. Hmm. Because I don't, I don't know. Um, Cause there are a lot of jobs that we have where there's a manager, there's some boss that gets on us. That's um, that yells a lot. That's like Petruchio was to Katerina, you know, and Digging and harsh and micromanaging and everything you do is wrong and you can't do anything right. And what you learn from that is how to fight battles, which battles to fight, what's really best. And I think Katarina especially learns there's that iconic scene on the way to uh, Bianca's wedding or Bianca. I don't remember if it's her reception or her wedding, but they go and... They stop someone on the street and the sun's high in the sky and it's the sun, it's daytime. And Petruchio says, mm-hmm. how bright the moon is. And right. this, and that's where Katerina learns. Like she's, she's become less shrewish. She's more subservient. But that's where she really learns to be humble and learns which battles to fight. Like which ones are important. Mm. It's okay to call the sun the moon in this context, because it doesn't matter getting the job matter. done. It doesn't matter if it's the sun or the moon. We're going to my sister's wedding. Hmm. That's what's important now. As long as we get there. We're here to support you. Yes, there were stars, or maybe it was rain. We're not sure. But that's not important. And so at the end, they're, they're all sitting by the fire, and the men are making bets about wh- whose wife will come to... Uh, if they call them, basically, mm-hmm. they'll send servants and like, hey, your husband needs you. Oh, well, OK. You know, that's what they're expecting. And everybody's betting that their wife will come very quickly, which is kind of stupid, because if all their wives were going to come, why even make the bet? Like you knew one wife wasn't going to. <laughs> right. So. But this happens. And Katarina, so all of these wives are already humble, subservient gracious gracious hostesses polite people like noble ladies but the only one who's learned how to manage herself and how to know really which battles are important to fight and which arguments don't matter then is katarina oh petruchio needs me okay he must have some sort of a reason go see what it is um it doesn't if it doesn't affect me this much let's just go see what happens and i think that's something that we can really gather from the play that i don't think is really politically incorrect at all no it's not I w- and, and I it's not really gender it's specific not gender specific at all but you have to get past the genders to learn that from that play interesting that's interesting hmm. cool all right, and then your final play that you performed in was Much Ado About Nothing. And what did you? What was your role there? I was Benedict, so I was uh, a Bassanio lover-like character again. I got the girl, and that one was a lot more fun for me. A lot more fun. Really? Yeah. And what? Um, so tell me about that play. Like, what did you? What did you enjoy about it? What do you? You know. I have a lot of air in my throat right now. Um, you have a lot of hot air. Uh, yeah, it's getting <laughs> hot in you. Uh, what did I... I really enjoyed... What I really enjoyed most about that play was that I was finally in a stage of life where I could appreciate drama. Like, I wasn't just seeking for laughs the whole time. Mm. And so... The really emotional scenes, I was able to not ham fist it and just totally like I really got into it I really had fun 
Um, and a, a large thing that helped me was that Benedict is a comic relief character for a couple, not even a couple, for a few scenes in the play. And just having a little bit of comedy, plus you get the dramatic flair, that was just, all of it came together really well. I liked that character. That's cool. We're going to take a quick station break. Right, so let's talk about why what's much ado about um, what are the themes what what are we what are we working with here with this one mm. craziness it's, it's silliness silliness it's it's the same thing it's, it's, <laughs> probably, it's probably the it's probably the the lightest of his plays that I can think of as mm-hmm. far the, yeah like just um much ado about nothing it's just much to do about nothing right it's yeah it it just kind of all makes cuz i mean you think shakespeare plays that's what they're thinking of is much ado cuz everything is like i mean even like the antagonist is comes across almost, I mean in my mind almost cartoonish I mean yeah like the stroking villain mustache right, right type of antagonist which he normally doesn't I mean he normally doesn't have that kind of an antagonist yeah um, but this one definitely does um, in dungeon right um, yeah anyway um, so and you've read all of his plays right any- I won't say all I won't say all. Do you, so other than the ones that you performed, or do you have a do you have a favorite, or do you have? Because I mean, just because the nature of the, the groups you were in, we, we didn't do any um, tragedies mm-hmm. or really histories. I think it was all comedies. Yeah, which is kind of good. You know, that's what people want to see. The fun. especially for younger for younger audiences. Yeah, I mean, Hamlet probably wouldn't be too appropriate, or Macbeth would be too appropriate for Macbeth and Hamlet. You could do appropriately, but yeah. Um, my favorite. I have a couple favorites. My favorite history is King Henry V, and if you haven't read it, read it because it's entertaining. Actually, watch it. It is. That is one of the coolest plays. It's about King Henry V, and he and he goes. It's and it's a war play, and so it's all there's lots of swords and fighting and heroics and speeches and that's just a really fun his. That's you don't say this a lot, but it's a fun history. That's true. That is not said a lot. Why? Yeah. So why? Um, and the. Go ahead. Oh no, 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 I just I heard something. Well, um so why why is that your favorite? Just it's just so fun. It's it is a history. So it compared to other histories, it's not just interesting. It's it's actually entertaining. It's like Merchant of Venice is to comedies the opposite of what this is to the histories. It really just carries itself and is a great So give play. us, what's the, what's the synopsis of that one? So King Henry V leads the English into battle against the French after sustaining heavy losses. And there's a bunch of other subplots as all Shakespeare plays have. And it's, it's just a blast. Is that the, is that the one of the famous? Uh, it's the one with the famous speech. Yeah. Crispin Day speech. Yeah, the Crispin's Day speech. Yeah. I think I actually. I keep saying it's King Henry V. I'm double guessing myself now, but I'm I'm 95 percent sure it's that one. So that's cool. I'm gonna go. With I mean, it. I, yeah, go with it. You know, if you're <laughs> at wrong. At this point, <laughs> at this point, if I'm wrong, whatever. Uh, yeah, it is what it is. Anyway, so what was so? Um, yeah, that is that's a great that that speech is specifically pretty great. Um, is there a, a is you say go watch it? Do you mean live or or is there a, a version that you enjoy? I don't know how often histories are performed live, but yeah, watch it live. There's a there's a version with Tom Hiddleston. 
as King Henry V. That's really good. And I, I enjoyed that one. Um, is that a newer one? Is that the one with the like the crown and the... Yeah. It's, it's, what was that called? I forget. The, the Hollow Crown. The Hollow Crown, right. It's, it's a, which is a series of Shakespeare plays that's compiled into movies. And I don't want to say which ones they are because they're all king's names with numbers. <laughs> so I'm going to mix it up. But I know King Richard III is in there, and I know King Henry V is in there. So and why? So I mean, the Hollow Crown. Why did they call it that? It's it's about the different kings having to fill the Hollow Crown, and it's kind of like stepping into the shoes. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. Speaking of speeches, I think my favorite play right now. I've, so I have two favorites for different reasons right now. For the first is King Lear because the first is King Lear because there's so many amazing insults and <laughs> they they go at each other in ways that only people from Shakespeare's time could. It's and that's incredible to just you find little things little lines in there you memorize them like scripture and you pull them out when your siblings make you mad oh well give us a one or two come on can't on air Uh, (laughs) Um, but my other favorite play for um, less superficial reasons (laughs) is probably Hamlet because it is the C.S. Lewis of Shakespeare's plays Wait a sec. <laughs> I don't know if that quite works. It totally works. It, okay, let me explain. It's a play that's real, relatable no matter w- what generation you're in or where you, or what culture you're from because it's a play about human nature. Okay, so the talk, so yeah, share with share share. Share share share. Um so it's about a character. First of all, it's about a character who we're not sure if he's sane and he's not sure if he's sane. And I think we've all kind of had, had that and fair warning. If you haven't had this stage of life, it's coming where it kind of feels like everything around you is fake and nothing is real. And you don't know if you're going crazy or if the world's just stupid or if you're reading into things too much, or are you not reading into things too much? Is it, are things what they seem to be? Um, the Matrix is is basically Hamlet's sanity and try to figure it out. That's kind of what the entire play is like. Huh. That's an interesting. So, like, the Matrix is is a, uh, a, a great 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 grandson of Hamlet of Hamlet <laughs> of Ham. It's just Hamlet's the character, not even the play of his brain. Is, huh. It, are things what they seem and do do does it matter so 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 Hamlet the, the play starts with his uh, father coming to or is his father's funeral it's, it starts with the ghost of his dead father um, haunting the guards which taking a step back forget that it's a tragedy forget all of that the fact that Shakespeare started, like, if you're a dead, Shakespeare must, you have to think about this. Shakespeare's sitting there with a quill and a desk, right? He has a piece of parchment in front of him. He's like, I want to write a play about a father and a son, but the father's dead. And there's, and his uncle killed him and married his father's wife. Okay, now how do I start that? You know what? I'm going to have the dead king haunt his guards. <laughs> the son's like, guard. <laughs> like, I'm just going to have him haunt the castle guards. Because what would you do if you were a dead king with spare time? <laughs> You're just going to ghost all around the castle and haunt your former guards. That's funny. And so, which, I don't know if that's what he was thinking, but I think that the whole play is on the edge of this existential crisis and absolute hilarity. And I think that's why it's such art. <laughs> yeah. 
Absolutely. It's absolutely art because of that. And so it starts with the ghost haunting the guards. And then the guards go say, hey, Hamlet, I don't know if this is a you thing or a me thing, but your father's <laughs> ghost is haunting us all. Can you come talk to him? Because like, I feel like you're more qualified for this because <laughs> it's your dad. Like that's that's the gist of the scene. That's great. And then so Hamlet goes and talks to his father and learns how his uncle killed his father and then married his father's wife and like all this incest and things that are going on, which is dark. And that's why we didn't perform it. (laughs) But (laughs) and so the entire time he's questioning his sanity of and trying to prove his father right without trying to be biased and just assume because he doesn't like his uncle so like it's very easy for him to go like oh yeah that makes sense so he's overthinking the whole (laughs) and so he's overthinking the whole thing and just played as if the father is telling the truth because ghosts don't come back to tell lies in Shakespeare's time (laughs) and and so he like puts on this play where the uncle kills the king and like watches his uncle like a hawk to see if it makes him uncomfortable and which it's kind of like if you were the brother of a king and your brother died and then you became king, any play like that would like set you on edge. Like, okay, so who's reading into this? <laughs> like who thinks that I killed my brother and dares to put this play on in front of me? Right. <laughs> so and the whole play is like that. And something that, that I think is true with performances is Shakespeare makes everything so much more dramatic so that it's stark. There's right. It's con- like it's clear what, like there's so much, you see all the nuances. Whereas in your own life, if you're in it, you don't see that as much. Right. And that's something that you really have to practice as a writer. And what made Shakespeare great is that he could create nuance with starkness. It's black and white, but it's black and white in how you see it. It's well lit, but there's still shade. Hmm. That's interesting. There's a line that's used as, there's the most famous line from it that's used as a punchline, which is to be or not to be. Right. right? Um, and I think that really is, if I had if I had to bring all Shakespeare's works together and build them up, that line would be at the foundation and the peak. Because it's really the essence of all of his plays. In Twelfth Night, when Viola is disguising herself as a man, how is she going to live? How will she be or not be? That is the question. And it's a question, it is a speech about suicide and that, and so it's a speech about life and death, but it's also a speech about how you live and how you die. Um, to be or not to be, that is the question, whether it is nobler to suffer the slings and arrows. So for going back to Viola is, or I'll use a different example. Going back to the daughter of Shylock, who I forget her name right now, and I feel really bad. Anyway, I'll remember. I'll remember when it's least convenient after we cut this off. (laughs) But Shylock's daughter. Somebody in the comments will mention it. It's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like like they say, that was not Henry V. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the plots in Merchant of Venice is that Shylock's daughter is trying to escape to marry the love of her life and her servant Launcelot is helping her to escape. And there again, we see the question, is it nobler to suffer the the slings and arrows? Hmm. Right. And, or to die, to sleep, to rest. Is it nobler to find peace and rest or is it nobler to suffer? And, you see that again with Katerina. Mm, interesting, yeah. And where she, and Katerina is an interesting example because she finds rest in the suffering. She finds rest in 
because there Submission. is no crisis. Right. She, she, there's no fight. There's no crisis. I can rest in the midst of, oh, I'm wrong. Cool. Right. <laughs> or I'm right. Or I'm I'm right. Cool. Cool. It, right. And what's nobler to exist as a force, as a stopper, or to not exist and just let things go. Hmm. And suicide is the the extreme of letting everything go, right? But and that's where I say Shakespeare really paints that starkness. But it really shows those nuances of how do we want to live. Hmm. Interesting. That's cool. Um and I'll say I'll say this. If that's the peak in the foundation, the little snow cap is another line from that play where uh, Polonius is talking to Hamlet and Hamlet's um, really taking on that crazy, insane kind of feel. And Polonius, he's reading a book upside down and Polonius asks him, what are you reading? And he just says, words, words, words. <laughs> and that's all, it's all it is. Excuse me. They're just stories about life lives that never happened words that never were said or never will be said except by reading it and that yeah and how do we get meaning out of it you know when there's there's how do we it, it is interesting because it is I, I find it's true that you can get the most meaning sometimes from a fiction because of what you said it, you, you can um you can take the mirror and uh, turn the light up, you know, uh, mm. a thousand degrees, you know, so that, yeah. so that it's, so the mirror is shining back at you, but it's, but it's so bright. You don't notice that it's you, mm. you know, it's kind of like um, there's a, there's a teaching of Christ in the Bible where he says, why are you picking at the moat in somebody else's eye when there's a beam in your own? Right. And Shakespeare just creates all these beams so that we can see, oh, these are how these beams are placed and they help us to see the motes in our own eyes. That may well be beams. <laughs> <laughs> likely. Very likely maybe beams. Yeah. Interesting, that's cool. Um, man, well that was fun. We gotta do this again. We need to talk more Shakespeare. That was, that was great. Our time is kind of far spent. Um, thank you, Steven. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for being on the, sh- on the on the on the podcast, and let's do it again. Let's do it again for sure. Right on, yeah. man. Thank you. Thank you.